We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Don't know what to do with all this space up here. I had a floor routine that I've been working on, but it's not quite ready yet. So we'll save it for next time. Yeah, we're just not gonna, not gonna do it right now. So uh, we're, we're kind of working on this theme of the road trip, right? Going on a road trip together. And if you've ever been on a road trip, you've been on a road trip with children, you get asked one question, almost like a call and response, right? Are we there yet? And no is the answer. Are we there yet? No. And there's something magical about the are we there yet? Uh, even if you're enjoying the drive, even if it's a nice, pleasant day outside, there's something about are we there yet that stokes a sort of fire inside of a man or a woman, and you, you begin to hate the drive too. It's almost infectious, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? We want to get there. We're not there yet. We're there yet. And we ask are, you, are we there yet a lot in our personal lives too. Like it doesn't have to be on a road trip. If you're not dating somebody, you might ask, when am I going to date somebody? Are we there yet? If you're dating somebody, when are we going to get engaged? Then after you get engaged, when are we going to get married? And then after we get married, when are we going to have kids? And after you have kids, when are they going to leave? <laughs> when are we going to get any sleep ever again? I have a two-month-old. I don't, there is no sleep. There is only pain. <laughs> and then after they leave, they're like, when are they going to come back? It's in your job. When am I going to get a job? After you get a job, when am I going to get a promotion? When am I going to get a raise? When am I going to start my own company? Are we there yet? 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 Always looking ahead. Always looking ahead. Never satisfied where we're at. Spiritually, we find ourselves asking the same question, and the psalmists actually ask this question. They don't say, are we there yet? They say, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let this go on? How long are the righteous going to suffer? How long are the wicked going to prosper? How long are you going to put up with this, Lord? Because it seems like you've forgotten. And in our own spiritual lives, we can ask, how long, O Lord? How long? How long is this going to last? How long until I finally stop messing up the same way I mess up over and over again? How long am I going to have to put up with this illness? How long, how long, how long? You seem so far away. It seems like you've forgotten me. Are we there yet, God? Today we're going to ask the question, what do we do when we begin to doubt the great, great love of God in our lives? What do we do? How do I respond? We're in Romans 8 today. I'm going to find three responses there to this complaint of are we there yet? How long, O oh Lord? And the first one is to stay focused. We're going to stay Focused. So Paul has just spent the last 17 verses of chapter 8 telling us that the things, all the things we've been set free from, we're set free from the law, we're set free from death, we're set free from sin. And on top of all this, we've got the Spirit of God living inside of us. We've been adopted as children of God. Everything's great. Let's just go home and we'll call it an early Sunday. But the problem is in verse 18, Paul brings us back to reality because he reminds us that the road that we're on is difficult. The road is difficult. We live in a world that's chock full of pain and suffering. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present time, we live in a world that's full of difficulty and suffering. Despite all the riches, all the blessings, all the benefit that we have as being followers of Jesus Christ, you know what? 
Our world is difficult, it's painful, it can almost make me question the benefit and the blessing of God in my life. Paul tells me I've been set free from death, except every time I turn on the news, I see all these people dying. Old people, young people, believers, non-believers, good people, bad people, death everywhere. Kind of makes me wonder, are we really set free from death? I've been told that I'm set free from the law and that I live under grace, but we live in an increasingly graceless society. Politicians rip each other all the time, and now it's not even restricted to the person in the other party. Now you go after people in your own party, too. Diplomacy between individuals and between nations seems a lost art. I can make rude comments about another human being and hide behind a screen name online, and you'll never know it's me. We say we've been set free from sin, but we live in a world that seems to be increasingly flagrant in their sin. That's not entirely true. There are, uh, have been other societies that are just as bad, if not worse, than ours. The Roman Empire, not great. The Greeks were pretty flagrant in their amoral actions. And then if you ever read anything about 18th century France, rough stuff, rough stuff. It led them to a revolution, actually. And this is what I call circumstantial suffering. This is suffering that we have, that we experience because we live in a world that is fallen. And this is all because of what happened in Genesis 3. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. For the creation waits with either eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now what's he talking about here? When Adam and Eve eat the fruit in Genesis 3, God lays down punishments, curses. He, he lays down a curse on the serpent, lays down a punishment on the woman. And then when it comes to the man, because the man was formed out of dust, there's this intimate connection between the man and also the woman and creation, all that is not human. And so God, rather than cursing the man, rather than punishing the man, goes to creation and says, because of your sin, man, I will curse the creation. So it'll bring forth thistles and thorns and all sorts of things that'll make work toilsome, difficult, hard. God is the one who subjected it to futility. God is the one that did it. Now what does this mean, futility? A lot of people have opinions on it. I think that it goes back to Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is meant to point us to God. It's meant to remind us of our creator so that we might worship him. But instead, what do we do with our creation? We take advantage of it. We try to strip it of everything that it can give us. We make ourselves the center of it. And we worship it. We worship created things. Not only just idols, but things that we can make with our hands, we worship. Money, power, material possessions. Now, if you had a job, and you did that job well, and people misinterpreted it, did wrong things with it, and abused it, you know what I would call your work? Futile. It's futile work. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so creation, because it's been cursed, rebels against its the person that's supposed to run over it, and that's you and me. God is in charge of all creation, and he puts us, human beings, in charge of his creation. So when we rebel against God, creation rebelled against us. So from sharks to tsunamis, 
from floods to famines, from diseases to drought, all of creation is in rebellion and it's groaning, it's longing for that to change. Because in the same way that its fall is related to our fall, its redemption is related to our redemption. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God makes a promise, it's contained within the curses in Genesis 3, that there's going to come someone that's born of a woman who's gonna crush the head of the serpent and fix everything that's broken. And we know this person to be Jesus Christ. He puts on flesh, dwells amongst men, the son of God, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins, buried, raised again. And those of us who put faith in him are rescued, are redeemed, and one day he's going to return. New heaven, new earth, all of creation will be restored, and the inanimate creation around this, the way that Paul's writing this is saying, creation knows this. And one commentator I read said, it's a symphony of size. Creation has a symphony of size, longing for the day when Jesus will return, when we'll have resurrected bodies, will be glorified, and then creation will be restored, not just to what it was, but to something even better. That's our destination. That's where we're going. New heaven, new earth. So we need to stay focused on the destination. Go back to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Keep reading in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's easy to look at the world around us and think, man, it's just, it's bad. It's rough. There's so much grief, so much pain, so much hurt. It doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. Things seem to be spiraling out of control. And Paul's writing here tells us that we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And you might think that because the Spirit of God is in us, he's gonna comfort us in the midst of these times. He's gonna remind us, hey, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. And he does that. But there's a side effect of having the Spirit of God living inside of you. When you see things that are not in line with what God wants, it breaks your heart. You grieve, you hurt, you long to see creation restored. You long to see it all fixed, all of it made new again. And so the Spirit of God inside of us almost exacerbates this problem. But it shouldn't lead us to despair. It shouldn't lead us to hopelessness. In fact, just the opposite. It should, it should encourage us, it should build us up to realize that I am now a child of God. And because I'm a child of God, I have a role to represent God to the rest of the world and remind them of the hope that's coming. So how do you do this? How do you stay focused on this destination? Well, when you're on that road trip and you say, are we there yet, are we there yet, are we there yet, what do you do? You respond with, hey, it's gonna be great when we get there. It's gonna be great when we get there. In fact, hey, look at this picture of how cool Yellowstone is. Or look at these things that I read on an internet article about Yellowstone. You try to remind them of something better. And in the same way, as, as the creation around us is crying out, how long, how long? As people around you are hurting, saying, how long? How long am I gonna put up this? Maybe they don't even know they're asking God how long. 
you remind them of the place to come, of the future, the hope that we have in Christ. One of the ways you do this is by praying. Spend time in prayer. There's a lot of things broken in our world, but you can maybe pick something that just really pricks your heart, that really grieves your soul. So for me right now, and maybe it's because I have young children, one of the things that I find myself grieved by greatly is when I see uh, children being hurt in the news. And so, I mean, I find myself praying, and not because I'm holier than thou or anything like that, but it just grieves me to the point where I'm, I'm praying for these kids that are missing or, or being hurt. Find something that's like just really strikes a chord with you and pray for it. Pray about it. Ask God to do something. Also, as a child of God, you bring with you the kingdom. Everywhere you go, you're bringing the kingdom, bringing the kingdom. Your spheres of influence. Let the rule and reign of the kingdom reign in you and reign in the places where you go. So that means you need to serve. You need to volunteer. Look, the fall is coming. We're way past midway through July. We're, we're coming in late July. You know that somebody is going to come up here and stand up here and ask you to volunteer in our children's ministry. You know it's coming. As surely as you know, lunch is coming today. Don't wait. Volunteer now. Sign up. Help some kids. Maybe there's some kids, hopefully not many, hopefully not any, but maybe there's some children that come here, and this might be the only safe place that they know. And maybe you can help make this a safe place for them because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And they might feel the Father's love through you. Volunteer in our city. Volunteer around the world. we got mission trips out today, like I said. Volunteer serve with them. Shine the light of the gospel wherever you go. You can't chase back the darkness by yourself. You're not meant to. But together, the Spirit of Christ in us, yes. So when you stay focused on the de destination, we do that through prayer, through service, remembering a better place to come. But we also need to wait patiently. We need to wait patiently. Like I said, we live in a fallen world. It's rough. Sometimes the Spirit of God in us exacerbates the problem. But I don't think that's the only problem we face when we think about the world to come and, and, and that stokes this, are we there yet? How long, O oh Lord, feeling inside of us? You know, one of the things that I think does that is I don't know what the new heaven and the new earth is going to look like. I don't really know what heaven's going to be like. Like, I don't have an exact picture of it. The destination is unseen. The destination is unseen. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So there's this tension inside of us. One, there's the salvation aspect. It's a past tense. I've been saved. I'm secure with Christ. I'm not going to lose that. You cannot lose your salvation. I'm going to keep that. But at the same time, I don't have everything that God's promised me yet. I don't have a resurrected body. I don't have a glorified body. I'm not with him. I still suffer. So there's some things that in hope I'm expecting. And so this destination that we're looking forward to is kind of unseen. It's almost like when you're on a road trip and your kids are like, why are we going to Yellowstone? Well, it's a really cool place. Why is it cool? Well, it's, it's got some rocks and sticks, some trees in it. Dad, we've got trees at home. And my friends are there, right? I feel like that's kind of the way that we think about the Bible's picture of the future for us. Well, what's it going to be like? Is it really going to be better than here? A major theme in God's saving work throughout history is a list of people who were promised things and didn't get to experience it in their lifetime. 
Think about Adam and Eve. We just talked about them. They were promised an, a child who would crush the head of the serpent. They thought it was Cain. It was not Cain. It was Jesus Christ, who they did not live to see. Abraham promised an heir, promised descendants as numerous as the seashore, and promised land. He died with one heir, Isaac, and one piece of property, which was a, a, a burial plot for his wife. That's all he had. Moses leads people to the promised land. It's literally called the promised land. And he doesn't go in. Why? Now, granted, it's his fault, but he still doesn't get to experience it in this lifetime. David is promised an heir to rule on the throne forever. Maybe it's Solomon. It's not Solomon. Solomon makes mistakes. Isaiah promises that the branch from Jesse will bring about eternal peace. Isaiah, we believe, is violently killed by being sawed in half. He did not get to experience that peace. Jeremiah, a return from exile is what was promised. A new covenant, and he dies in exile in Egypt. Joel, spirit of God's gonna pour out on humanity, on the people of God, and they're gonna dream dreams. You know what happened to Joel? I don't know. But I know he didn't live to see the pouring out of the spirit in Acts chapter two. And with each of these individuals, you would think that it would just crush their faith. God, I didn't get to see what you promised. I didn't get to experience it. And yeah, sometimes there's some, sometimes there's some frustration. Sometimes there's some longing in their lives. But to a person, it actually increases their faith. They recognize, they see what God is doing, and it gives them hope. It encourages them to wait patiently because they know that God is faithful. We have been promised things as well in the word of God about our eternal future. Here's some of them, just some of them. Christ will physically return with a resurrected body. So he's not this spiritual return, whatever. He's coming back in person to set things right. We've been promised that we would be with Christ forever. Now some of you might be like, wow, that's kind of intimidating to be around Jesus, like he's perfect. Guess what, he loves you and accepts you. Imagine being around the most favorite person you're ever around, the person you're always like, yes, I wanna to go to lunch with that person, a life-giving person. That's what it'll be like with Jesus, but like times a million. It's gonna be incredible. Be free from suffering, persecution, whatever pain, emotional pain, physical pain, free from it, gone, don't have to deal with it. At the same time, God will comfort us. It makes me think that maybe we'll remember some of the pain that we go through, and God will be there to comfort us in the midst of it. Our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our souls, so you don't get a disembodied spirit floating on a cloud somewhere in heaven that's not the Christian hope. When you die, your hope is that you'll go to heaven to be with the Lord if you're a follower of Jesus, and then when Christ returns, the dead in Christ shall rise, spirits reunited with our bodies, and we will dwell with him with a resurrected body just like his. We believe that we will live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. So don't just go to live on heaven. We get a new earth. God comes to dwell with us. That's Revelation 21. We'll reign with Christ forever. So it's not this like just hanging out church worship service for all eternity. Reigning with Christ means we've got work to do. We've got things that we work with that we get to worship by work. And what we've done is we've jettisoned these unseen hopes in favor of more tangible things that we can hold on to, right? Clouds and harps, right? Everybody gets a white robe, sweet set of wings, halo, harp. That's what I get when I die. I'm just gonna do this the rest of the sermon. See if it unnerves anybody. We say heaven's what you want it to be. So if you like 18 holes of golf, you can play like three times a day. It'd be great. 
if heaven has a lot of golf in it, I'm probably going to question where I wound up. I don't like golf very much. Heaven's whatever you want it to be. Heaven's a place for good people. So if you're like not in the bottom 5% of morally moral people, you'll go to heaven. Don't worry about it. That's what, we, that's what culture believes. And as a Christian subculture, we have latched on and even added to this. Man, we eat up those heaven is for real books. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody kind of has a death experience, near-death experience. They have some sort of vision or something. And we just eat it up. And sometimes they actually contradict Scripture. But we still read them, and we're like, oh, that's what must heaven will be. No. If it contradicts Scripture, they didn't see heaven. I'm not saying they didn't see anything. I'm just saying they didn't see heaven. We think that heaven's going to be one giant church worship service. I'm pretty sure I heard a groan, literally audibly. That's okay, bro. I'm with you. I love church. I love going to church. I work in a church. I love worshiping with all of you. But eternity's a long time for a church service. (laughs) If I get y'all out at 12.05, I'm going to hear about it. And that's just what I mean by that. Like, people say that, but I don't know very many people who are excited about that. And the reason why we're not is because we're not made just to do a worship service. It's good. I believe they'll be singing. I hope they're singing. I love singing. I hope my brothers back here are going to be leading. But I think heaven's going to be more than that. And I think the reason why we do this, why we latch on to these things to try and find assurance, to try and find hope, is because the world gets so dark that we try to grab things to hold on to, mile markers that says how close we are. If you're ever on a road trip and it says like Dallas 150 miles and you're like, oh, then the next one says like 149, like why do you make that sign? It's just mean, (laughs) but it's there. But what we've done is we've looked for mile markers that, that aren't helpful. We've become slaves to our work. You work 80 hours a week, and so when I tell you that you're going to get to work in heaven, you're like, God, God's just not, he's just going to keep taking from me. That's because your view of work is toil, and it's not toil that we're supposed to have. Work is good work. God made us for those things. We become inundated with recreation to the point we think heaven's just going to be an amusement park. Recreation's not bad. I think there'll be good things there, fun things to do. But that's not the point. We make eternity this church service. Here's the reason why. It's not because we love church. It's because our view of worship is so narrow that we confine it to one hour a week. We don't realize that every part of a believer's life is supposed to be worship. So when we see worship in the Bible, we just think church. That's a part of it. Absolutely is a part of it. It's a great part of it. But it's not all that there is. We've got to quit buying these lies and we've got to wait for it with patience. We've got to patiently wait for it to be revealed. Look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Suffering, faithfully waiting with patience is a hallmark of the people of God. Waiting patiently is a hallmark of the people of God. So how do we do this? Well, I think it has to do with what we see. Paul talks a lot in these two verses about what we see, what we look at, what we experience physically. So there's something I want you to stop experiencing physically, and there's something I want you to experience physically. So the first thing is we're going to resist temptation. Temptation is is something that comes to you with a short-term offer for short-term gain, regardless of long-term consequences. The long-term hope we have in Christ, the joy we find in Christ, short-term comes to you, sin comes to you and says, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Just 
taste this, touch this, feel this, see this, go this route. The promises of God, you can't count on them. Travis just read this long list of people that never got to experience those promises in this life. Do you want to be one of those? No, it's disappointing. Keep going. Do the things you want to do. Make yourself happy. Temptations are an assault on your unseen hope because they offer you something that you can see. It's a trade. It's an offer to trade. I'll trade you one promise from God for a momentary fleeting moment of, of pleasure. Now again, I'm not saying you lose your future if you give in to temptation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we resist temptation by remembering the hope that we have. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to buy that lie anymore because the hope that I have in Christ is better. I'm going to remember the hope that I have in Christ, the joy that I have. I'm going to wait patiently for him to deliver me. Because you know what? If I don't give in to temptation today, Jesus Christ might show up tomorrow. And I don't mean that as like a, oh man, he's going to knock, knock my head against the wall if, if, if I do this thing. No, what I mean is Jesus might actually literally ride to the rescue tomorrow. I think that a lot of us give in to temptation because we think, well, if I don't give in to it today, I'm probably just going to do it tomorrow, so I might as well just do it today. But what if you change your attitude and said, you know what? No, maybe my God will come to the rescue. And maybe he'll deliver me. Maybe not Jesus physically returning, but maybe something will happen to where you don't have to give in to that temptation tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You know what we call that? Faith. Being certain of what you don't see. That's faith. At the same time, your senses aren't bad. We can't just not use our senses. Our senses are actually very good. And remember, all of creation calls us to worship God. So we need to look around at the beauty that God offers us. We need to look around at the beautiful things that he's given us and remember our hope and allow it to point us to that hope. You're meant to enjoy the world that you've been given. It's beautiful. We have a beautiful creation. So how do you do this? Well, I think one way is the arts. Music, singing, painting, sculpting, TV, movies. There's great stuff out there that calls our attention to the hope that we have in Christ. This is why I love Andrew Peterson. If you don't know Andrew Peterson, he actually played this piano right over here um, for us about a year and a half ago. Your little call and response with him. Um, is he worthy? He is. We did that together. It was a lot of fun. If you are going through any sort of trial in your life, I cannot recommend enough to you his album, The Burning Edge of Dawn. Just write it down. It's called The Burning Edge of Dawn by Andrew Peterson, and you will weep like a small child, and when you're done, you can email me and tell me that was the awesomest thing ever. I'll wait. It's fine. He ministers to me so much when I'm hurting and grieving because he calls my attention to the hope that I have in Christ. Some of you don't know this name, Pete Doctor. Anybody know Pete Doctor? Probably don't. He works for a little small company out in California called Pixar. And um, he's written a few movies. Uh, you've probably seen some of them. They're, they're minor works, Toy Story, Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, Toy Story 4, Wall-E, Inside Out, up, which is the best first 15 minutes of any movie ever. And Pete Doctor loves Jesus. Pete Doctor reads the Bible, and Pete Doctor takes what he learns in Scripture and he puts it in his movies. You want to know why Pixar movies hit you right in the feels like every time you see them? It's because the Spirit of God is working in Pete Doctor to show you the beauty of the hope that we have in Christ without ever mentioning Jesus' name. I've tried to get him to speak here numerous times. He's always busy, which is fine. You write your movies, bro. This is why we love Michelangelo and, and, and Donatello and the other Ninja Turtles. No, the other artists. This is why we love them, because they, they call our attention 
to the hope that we have in Christ. Some of you have been gifted with the ability to make beautiful things. Make those beautiful things and remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Some of us have not been gifted with that. But you can still take time to do something that creates beauty. Color with your kids, color with your grandkids. Do something that reminds you of the beauty of God's creation. And find your hope there in the fact that he's going to make all things new. Even the good things are gonna be new, which means brighter, more vibrant. And that'll give us patience because we see these beautiful things that we have and we think, yes, it's coming, it's coming. So we wait patiently, we stay focused on the destination and then we cling to Christ. Romans 8, 31 to 39, it's kind of the culmination. Paul does this, he, he kind of recaps things several times throughout Romans. And in verse 31, he actually triumphantly proclaims that God is for us. Verse 31 of chapter eight, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So think about this. When we are not in Christ, when we have not been forgiven, when we, 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 are, we are enemies of God, God is hostile to us. And when we are enemies of God, God sends his most treasured possession, his son, to earth to die on the cross for our sins. When we put our faith in him, we are redeemed, rescued, and now we're adopted, and we're friends of God. So now we're in the family. So why do you think when we're enemies of God, God would give us his most valuable possession, and now that we are not enemies, we're actually brought into the family, God would withhold stuff from us? God's purpose in your life is unassailable, it's unassaultable, it's unbeatable, and his purpose for your life is that you would be shaped into the image of his son. That's God's will for your life. That's the plan, it's to make you more like Jesus. And he will pull out all the stops to make that happen for you, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ in your resurrection. And so Paul reminds us to cling to Christ, and because we've clung to Christ for salvation, put all our faith and hope and trust in him, we need not fear accusation or condemnation. Keep reading in 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You're gonna have all sorts of things that accuse you in your life. Family, they're gonna remind you of the person you used to be before you knew Christ, and they're gonna bring it up all the time. That accusation doesn't stand before your heavenly father. Culture around you is gonna call you terrible things because you have a God to follow and a Christ to worship. And we don't listen to the accusations. Satan is gonna accuse you. That's literally what Satan means, accuser. Your own sin will accuse you. And Jesus Christ stands there and says, no, mm -mm. he's with me, she's with me. But Travis, you don't understand. My road is difficult. You said the road is difficult earlier, and I get the whole third party thing, but you don't understand. My road is difficult. I've got sin. I've got failings. I've got problems that I'm dealing with. I have physical pain, emotional pain, mental illness. I'm lonely. My road is difficult. Well, I've got news for you. The Word of God has something to say to you today. God very much wants to speak to you, and He's going to say it in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's been through every single one of the scenarios that he's painted here for you. The only one he's missing is the sword. 
which he will die by the sword by being beheaded. And he says that out of this experience that he's had, he says, no, nothing will separate us. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of Christ. You need to know this and accept it as a truth. The people of God will suffer. The Old Testament saints suffered. Jesus Christ suffered and died for us, but that doesn't excuse us from suffering. In fact, it almost makes it more likely that we should suffer. And from the safety of our our Highland Park houses or our Lake Highlands houses, we might watch the world struggle. And if you haven't been acquainted with grief and pain yet, you will. You will hurt. You will hurt. And God's voice comes in the midst of it and says, you know what? That's not going to take you away from me. And it's not going to stop my purpose for you. It can't be stopped. And part of faith is believing that that's true. Believing God at his word in verses 35 and 36, that nothing is going to separate us from Christ. So what do we do? We cling to Christ to overcome. We've got to cling to Christ to overcome. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That verse 37 there, more than conquerors. I think sometimes we read that and think it means everything's going to be easy because I'm going to win all the time. The word there, conqueror, means overcome. One commentator says it means overcome, not overkill. A lot of people think that conquering in Jesus means I'm not going to suffer, I'm not going to struggle. Have you ever watched a movie where there's like a battle or a conqueror? Even if the guy wins, what does he look like? Battered, bloodied, some of it's his own blood. It's cut, bruised. It's all disheveled. But he's a conqueror. He wins. We win in Christ. We conquer in Christ. We don't win the battle. Christ wins it for us. But we still struggle. And it might look like you're struggling sometimes. Paul struggled. Paul suffered. And he says, I'm convinced, I'm certain that it will never, ever separate us from the love of Christ. And it's the, I'm sorry, the love of God. And it's the love of God in Christ. So what do we do? You've got to go back to the gospel. To cling to Christ, you have to go back to the gospel. So when you're hurt, remember that the Son of God was hurt for you. And find solidarity in that. Be like, I'm I'm hurting right now, but Jesus was hurt too, and I'm going to identify with his sufferings. When you fail, when you sin, when you break God's heart, you remember the gospel again, and you say, you know what? Jesus Christ died on the cross. That doesn't condemn me anymore. Jesus Christ is my salvation. He is my hope. He's my future. When you're lonely, remember the gospel and remember that Jesus Christ suffered and died alone. And you turn to him in Christ and you say, Lord Jesus, I am so lonely. Please help me. Please bring brothers and sisters around me. When you're depressed, remember that the Lord God himself was sorrowful unto death. So much so that he sweat drops of blood. When you're grieving, remember that Jesus grieved over a man he was literally about to raise back from the dead. Jesus wept. And know that Jesus grieves with you when you're hurting. 
when you're broken and you can't go on anymore, you remember the gospel, when you feel like you can't carry the cross anymore that God uh, sort of has placed in your life, that God's allowed to be in your life, when things are difficult and you can't go on anymore, you can't carry that cross, remember the gospel and remember that Jesus couldn't carry his cross either. He had to get Simon to carry it for him. So reach out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I can't carry this anymore. I need you to take it for a while. And watch him do it. Watch him do it. I know many of you are asking, how long, O Lord? How long? And you might be asking that question for a long time. Stay focused on the destination. Continue to serve and give God glory even as you suffer. Wait patiently for what God is doing and he will be faithful to do it, whether it's in this life or in the new heaven and the new earth to come. And then cling to Christ by going back again and again and again to the gospel because that's where the answer lies. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, you have poured out into our lives your spirit, the spirit who gives us hope in the midst of difficulty. And I know there are many of us here who are struggling, many of us who are hurting, many of us who, are, who have minor ailments, major ailments, heartbreak, concern. But we trust you with that, Lord. We give it to you today. I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they might come to know you because of the hope that we have in Christ. We love you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.